face with you. Good to see you. Some familiar faces, some new faces. Uh, Scott, you were asking about when uh, Okomokom Emmanuel was written. All you had to do was look up at the keynote. Uh, the music was written in the 115th century. Yeah, it was a little typo on there. I think it meant 15th, but I was kind of, my mind was blown that this was written in the future and piped back to us. I mean, a lot of sci-fi movies going on. I okay. Sorry for the dad jokes. That's all I've got. Good morning, everyone. My name's Nelson. I'm on the pastoral team here. It's my privilege to offer some reflections as we continue our journey through the Advent season. I think one of the things I love about Advent, and I do love Advent, uh, is, is the pace that it invites me into. Someone who isn't part of Artisan asked me the other day, so Advent, things must be getting crazy busy for you at the church. And I said, actually, not really. <laughs> Some churches ramp up during this season. We sort of ramp down. Like, I don't have anything against singing Christmas trees. We just don't do them here. Um, there are different ways, of course, to observe this season. Uh, we've always just felt invited into a slowing down. So I hope you're feeling that, at least to some extent, this morning. And I think we're invited to a different way of paying attention. And Advent also consider, or invites us to consider some parts of Scripture that we don't often pay attention to, a little more obscure, yet very central to the story. And I love that we get to do that, too. So the lectionary text that we're going to look at and kind of camp in today is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. And Bree read it for us already. Uh, those names are something, eh? Yeah, I know. It's, it's pretty crazy. Reread it from the NIV, and I'd like to read it once more this time in the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, and then we're going to walk through the section, or the text one section at a time. So hear the word of the Lord from Luke 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis. I don't think that's a disease. I think it's a place. And Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the words, in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we look at this first part of the text, we'll have it up on screen here. It, what's worth remembering is that this writer, Luke, is both storyteller and historian. His task is not only to carry forward the biblical narrative that by now is well underway, but to do so by rooting the story of Jesus squarely within Israel's history. So in this opening verse, we've got dates and names and places aplenty. He begins with empire, he moves through regional authorities, and ends with the religious leadership. So Tiberius is mentioned first for obvious reasons. He's the emperor, he's Caesar. Uh, later, you remember that story when they gave a coin to Jesus and asked him a question about taxation? Well, Tiberius's portrait was the one that's on that money. To the average citizen of Rome, Caesar was Lord. 
He was the supreme authority. He is the one Romans were actually encouraged to worship. And his rule is usually dated from the year 14 in the Common Era, which would make Luke's reference around 28 or 29. Then Pilate gets a mention. Pilate was in charge of the region of Judea from about 26 to 36, and of course plays a significant role later in the story. And from there, we go to Herod. This is Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great. He ruled the sub-region of Galilee until about 39 and would also show up later. It's well known, I think, how brutal Herod and his sons were with regard to taxing the people. Philip and Lysanias ruled in other sub-regions. We won't try to say their names again, but they aren't mentioned again in Luke's narrative. They've had their moment. So we've had Tiberius Caesar, Pilate, Herod, and more, and then the Jewish religious authorities are mentioned. The question is, why? Why do these power brokers, or what do these power brokers have to do with the good news? Well, in their minds, the answer would be nothing. None of them would have been excited to discover their name written in an obscure tract of a marginal religious movement of the time. In Luke's mind, on the other hand, they had everything to do with it. We could put it this way. Dates, places, and the names of political figures remind us that the promises of God come to fulfillment in time, at a particular time, in the context of physical history. So when we don't skip over this part, when we take even a brief moment to consider the rulers' names, as well as the names of the geographical areas over which they ruled with the entire weight and influence of Rome behind them, when we consider that this was the context in which Israel continued to wait for the promised Messiah to come, as they had been already for hundreds of years, it begins to sink in just how desperate those on the periphery of empire were for some good news. The people of Israel were ripe for change, longing for God to once again deliver God's people, to set them free. So, we're given a picture of the context, and then something happened. Verse 2b, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. There's so much in that little phrase. What happened was a revelation of the divine. The word of God came to whom? Well, notice who it didn't come to. Not Philip or Lysanias. We've already said they've had their 15 minutes. Not Herod. Not Pilate, which is a little more surprising, but also not even Tiberius Caesar. According to Luke's witness, the word of God did not come to the one most people thought was God. If it didn't come to one of these who were at the center of political power, then surely it would come to those in religious authority. That would make sense. They'd be next in line. But no, not even the high priests heard from God. They're just incidental. Who then? It comes to John, son of Zechariah, an itinerant countryside preacher, a bit of an odd one at that. One writer described him this way, John the Baptist didn't fool around. He lived in the wilderness around the Dead Sea. He subsisted on a starvation diet, and so did his disciples. He wore clothes that even the rummage sale people wouldn't have handled. When he preached, 
It was fire and brimstone every time. The word of God came to a radical prophet with an unconventional fashion sense who always meant business. And for some reason, this was a prophet who chose to confine his work to the areas around the Jordan River, and he was quite content not to cross the hills into the city, where he might have had a wider audience. So we need to notice where this revelation comes, not to the halls of political power, not to the temple. It comes neither to Rome nor Jerusalem. It comes to John in the wilderness. The word of God is revealed on the margins. Now, in the gospel writer's imaginations, the wilderness signaled several realities. In some parts of the story, it's a place of testing. We all know the story of Jesus in the wilderness. A place of prayer also happened in that same context. A place of withdrawal, a place to get out of the rat race and perhaps to then to reemerge, a place of miracles. So given all this, Luke's original readers would by now have been tipped off that something big was about to go down. Verses 3 to 6 again. He, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Advent, of course, is commonly known as a season of preparation. We're cleaning our homes, we're clearing things out, creating space, we're digging out the decorations, getting a tree, perhaps, plugging parties into calendars. This is five parties between the two of you, John and Charlotte, this Christmas. That's a lot of parties, four or five. Some of you... Anyway, I'm not going to talk, not going to do a survey how many parties we've got. It's a lot. Drawing names for gift exchanges, perhaps, some of us. Baking cookies. Maybe some of us are booking flights. Packing bags. The list of preparations may vary. But in one way or another, we're all simply getting ready for Christmas. And in the midst of our annual Advent busyness, every single year, this camel skin wearing locust and wild honey eating wild-eyed prophet enters the scene. He interrupts our schedules and calls us to make preparations of a different sort. He insists, he demands that we get ready for Jesus. I love how Kathy Beach Verhey says it. Before we can bask in Christmas joy and the birth of a special baby, John forces us to examine ourselves and our world. In the style of the Old Testament prophets before him, John challenges Advent people, love that, with a message of personal and corporate self-examination. Advent, John reminds us, is a time to prepare to welcome Jesus and not simply our invited Christmas house guests. And part of that preparation, according to John, requires a, a particular kind of immersion Luke called it a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I don't know about you, but as I've heard and read and kind of wondered at this text over the years, I haven't always known how to link verse 3, which is an individual ritual of repentance, right, 
with what follows in verses 4 to 6. This grand equalizing vision of justice, all things made new. So given the story, given the history that Luke has laid out before us with its names and rulers and power, a revelation in the wilderness, anticipation of future messianic hope, at least the prospect of good news on the horizon, we might reasonably wonder what inviting everyday people, one at a time, to turn from their sins and be baptized has to do with preparing the way for what Isaiah said was coming. There's a poet I've recently discovered who wondered this as well. His name is Drew Jackson. He's just published a collection called God Speaks Through Wombs, poems on God's unexpected coming. And each poem is linked with a specific passage in Luke's gospel. So if you need yet another Advent resource, uh, this, this is a really good one. Um, and the first eight chapters in particular, it doesn't go through the whole gospel, that would be a, a thicker volume. But there are several poems that are connected with Luke 3, so I want to offer one to us this morning. It's entitled, Waters of Insurrection. And there's an epigraph before the poem that says this, Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. It's from Cornell West. I went out into the desert where the prophet speaks his word. He spoke of things I cannot say that I had ever heard. His mouth was filled with power. His eyes burned deep with fire, but not because he hated. It was justice he desired. He wanted public love to roll like fast and mighty rivers. The things he said, they touched my core, gave my soul a shiver. I stood and listened closely to hear him talk oppression. But I could little understand his talk about confession. I came to hear him speak about the sins of evil Rome, but what he wanted was for me to think upon my own. Apparently, from what he says, my sins make me complicit. He told me that repentance is my real act of resistance. He stood knee-deep in water and reached in my direction. I grabbed his hand and I stepped in, committing insurrection. Isn't that good? Put the last two stanzas up on the screen here. What stirs in you as you hear Drew Jackson reframe repentance as resistance? The Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's about turning around and moving in a new direction, making change. A mindset, an attitude, in practice. So what if Jackson is right? What if John was right, that repentance is truly where resistance begins? That this is the ongoing preparatory work that's required of us not to just get ready for Christmas, but to ready ourselves for Jesus. What if public love starts with personal change? Jackson's poem, sitting alongside this ancient text, has helped me re-recognize, maybe, maybe not even re-recognize, maybe recognize for the first time, legitimately, the connection between John's individual baptism and Isaiah's vision for societal transformation. 
between personal sins and social sins. I appreciate how Louis Savory put it. Because social sins and personal sins are tied together so inextricably, it is inadequate to say that in his crucifixion, Christ died only for our personal sins. What is much more realistic is that Jesus of Nazareth very consciously died bearing the weight of the social sins of organized society. Those very sins he openly struggled to confront during his ministry. We might call them collectively the sins of humanity. Of course, our personal sins are bound up in those social evils and have contributed to their continued existence. It's a lot to chew on there. And, and because that's true, then John again disrupts our Christmas preparations with his annual invitation to commit insurrection. May we not miss also that this is a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's a good news baptism. The word translated as forgiveness there is aphesis, which means to let go. So God is the only one with the power and the authority to let go of our sins. So think of it this way. When you and I humbly say yes to the call to repentance, what we're doing is saying yes to God's reaching out to us to deliver us from evil. Advent is the season where we prepare our hearts to receive the one who lets go of our sins. Whew. So what will eventually happen as we give ourselves to this? Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's a good word, y'all. Universal justice, public love, God's salvation seen by everyone. What a vision. This is traditionally Peace Sunday, Scott mentioned. Here, this is a picture of it. It's what peace looks like. All flesh, everyone is in on it. Can the good news get more inclusive than that? Spoiler alert, it cannot. This text doesn't just foreshadow the incarnation. There's a through line going on here that looks beyond Christmas to Pentecost, where the spirit, we're told, is poured out on all flesh, not just Christian flesh. All flesh. This vast scope of redemption includes not just the chosen nation, but the nations. Full stop. Isaiah said, all flesh will see the salvation of God then Luke picks that up and places John within that prophetic lineage as the front runner to, as the way preparer for Emmanuel, God with us. What is the salvation of God? Well, it certainly includes the divine promise of eschatological or end time ultimate redemption that one day there will be, as we sang also this morning, no more tears or pain or sadness or death, and that is a big reason why those who follow Jesus and also bear the weight, most of the weight of injustice among us, can still hold on to hope. It's the eschatological vision. This isn't the end. One day there will be an ultimate redemption. 
And yet the biblical vision, which we can trace through the entire prophetic tradition from Isaiah to John the Baptist to Jesus himself and beyond to Cornell West, <laughs> cannot be only future. Can't be. The salvation of God, according to this Advent text, is one that looks like mountains flattened and valleys raised and crooked roads made straight, rough places smooth. In other words, it looks like peace. It looks like justice, and it's not just something for later. It's for here and now. It's both now and not yet. And the fact that this vision is not yet fully here does not, cannot cause us as followers of Christ to sit back and say, oh well, what can we do? It's future glory. I'm just passing through. This world is not my home. No, that's spiritual bypassing. It's the gospel of white privilege. This world is our home. It's not just ours, but everyone made in the image of God. Jesus taught us to pray for God's reign to come on earth as it is in the heavens. What are the lyrics in the song as well? Descending from the sky, heaven is coming to us. Read Revelation. <laughs> this is a salvation that is meant to be seen, seen by all flesh here, now, it's precisely because a fuller picture has been promised and is waiting for us that we live intentionally into and we actively seek to help co-create that future hope now. Yeah. So friends, this Advent Sunday, uh, why don't we go down to the river? I kind of wish we had one. We were kind of right beside one. We don't often do our altar calls here. But what I'd like to do is give you a few minutes to ponder and plan your personal insurrection. Maybe you need a few minutes to ponder the sweet alliteration going on in that little phrase. I don't know. <laughs> I kid. We're going to just hold a bit of space for some silent reflection. And I kind of wish, had this thought, let's just be on a retreat, maybe by a river. I wish I could magically turn these chairs into nice, big, comfy, cozy ones, the fireplace nearby. I wish I could put a cup of hot chocolate in each one of your hands and we could have a couple of hours to really be here in this place. But then I remember the word of God came to the wilderness. We, we can't get too comfortable. So we've got plastic chairs is our wilderness today. I'm going to offer a few questions and prompts, kind of one at a time with some stillness in between each one as we prepare to come to the table and continue in this season. So get as comfortable as you can and be prepared for just some reflection. In this Advent season, what might it look like for you not to simply get ready for Christmas, but to get ready for Jesus? So listen for the Spirit's invitation. Maybe there's one step that'll emerge for you to take, a word of intention. Let's hold space for this.
And I want to invite you to uh, assume the imaginative space that Drew Jackson took as he wrote that poem. So imagine being on the banks of the Jordan. Picture John holding out his hand, standing knee deep in the water, inviting you into the waters of insurrection. And he tells you that repentance is your real act of resistance. Is there a change that you've been wanting to make? Something to lay down? Something to let go of? Something to take up? Spend a couple of brief moments in that space. One more. Whatever action that you've felt invited into, no matter how big or small, I invite you to ask for the courage and grace to take that action and to trust Jesus that you'll be given what you need. It's a brief silence, and we'll come to the table. you as you're able, as you feel invited to share your stories, share your confessions uh, one to another. Maybe it's something to do in your neighborhood group if you're meeting this week. People in your household. So I invite us to the Lord's table together as we do each week.